Welcome to the 61st episode of It Wasn't Me, a true crime podcast where we discuss murders that intrigue us. I'm Mercedes. And I am Cindy. Thank you for listening to last week's episode where Cindy finished telling us about <laughs> the twisted mind of Roche Terrio and the charismatic psycho preacher. Thank you, Cindy. Our show is often horrifying and graphic and we will use offensive language. So if you have kids, put them away for a while and join us for a murder. Also, we are passionate and always have been about true crime, but we must warn you, sometimes we're going to make jokes and laugh during our podcast. Want to learn more about us? Visit our website at itwasn'tmetruecrime.com to find links to our social media pages. We drop a new episode every Friday morning. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform so you don't miss out. Thank you for listening. And if you are even slightly entertained with our Southern charm, leave us a five-star rating along with a comment. If not, reach out to us and let us know how we can improve. Also, please recommend our podcast to your friends and family. Share the love. Hey girl, how are you? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you. I'm feeling quite well this week. Feeling good. good in the neighborhood. You know, last week I was a little depressed. I must be on a manic upward swing. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Today, this week's not so bad. No, nothing yeah. catastrophic has happened. A little cold, a little cold out there. But, um, you know, Monday I went to work and forgot to take a coat. And, you know, I, I don't know if you all know that we live in sunny Florida and you actually needed a coat this week. Yeah. So, yeah, pretty cold. I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't care where you live. 30 degrees is probably pretty cold. 30, de- well, was it, did it get that low? Mm-hmm. I know it was 36 or 37, but um, yeah, pretty cold. But, you know, I made it. Here I am feeling good. I'm ready to talk okay. about uh, some slime balls here. All right, well, let's go. Yeah, okay. So um, just forewarning, this episode is about two drug-fueled rapist killer scumbags. And I just wanted to say thank you so much for your work these last four weeks, because you gave me a little break. I mean, I honestly needed it because I have been researching this case for a long time and it is so fucking awful that I've had to shake off the negative energy by just stepping away lots of times, you know, like even at the 11th hour, I'm still working on it because it's, it's just, these guys freaking make me cringe. Okay. Um, So uh, the victims and the killers in this week's episode have been featured in numerous documentaries and podcasts, but I had never heard of them until I tripped up on them during one of my topic searches, of course, you know, and their killing spree spanned at least 14 years. Oh, wow. There are so many twists and turns that it's my turn to take three weeks and I'm most likely going to take at least three weeks to cover this. Okay. Um, possibly four i'm trying to whittle it down to three okay um and i just need to say right off the bat that i feel awful for the victims and families and i know that i'm not really doing them justice there's just not enough time and honestly not enough information about the victims in this week's episode we've talked about that before where it seems like the murderers get glorified and the victims really don't there's not a lot of information unless it's i don't i mean Yes, you're right. Because usually we're shocked by killers and, you know, what made them that way and why they think that way. And, you know, I, I, I don't want to glorify them and, and you'll figure out why in just a second, because I'm going to introduce you to the killer right off the bat. So are you ready? I am ready. Okay. Well, actually I'm going to let him introduce himself to you in his own words. Oh, okay. Uh 
So this was a letter that he penned, um, and I believe um, he wrote this in 2012. And here we go. He says, hello, my name is Wesley Sherman Tyne Jr. And I've been here on death row since May of 2001. I'm currently single, but previously married to a wonderful woman who blessed me with two beautiful sons, now grown men. She has since remarried. I was born on February 24th, 1966 in Stockton, California, and graduated from Linden High School in 1984. Prior to this tragedy occurring in my, our lives, I slash we enjoyed simple things like fishing, hiking, hunting, horseback riding, backing, packing into the wilderness. And he wrote that I did not mess up. (laughs) Water skiing, gold panning, playing in the winter snow, and just about anything to do with the great outdoors. I mean, isn't this so poetic? So charming. Doesn't he sound like a charming guy? Is this like the um Yes, this is dating games? I mean I don't know if this is on the date. No, it's actually um it's something that you I guess you can write to pen, you know, pen pen Oh, the like yeah, 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 yeah. This is his, you know, this is his high. His profile. Like yes, introduction. Okay. Yes. He says professionally construction was my forte, building motels, hotels, apartment complexes, both track and custom homes, everything from concrete to roofing, framing to finish work. I miss working each day. Huh. It's increasingly difficult to remain faithful despite being baptized Catholic since July of 2007. I live alone in a tiny prison cell trying to teach myself to draw and paint. I enjoy reading fantasy books and watch a considerable amount of television. Never having been to prison before, I get by. There's a lot more to me than really meets the eye. I love music too, along with the unexplainable in life, things we cannot see or even have a true understanding of. Today, (laughs) anything you want to say about that before I keep reading? Um, I don't... uh, uh... He, okay. I think he definitely labored over this letter of love here. Honestly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I really have a, a question about track and custom homes. What is a track home? <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I'm thinking it might be kind of a, a modular home or maybe like a, you know, uh, it's, it's kind of a cookie cutter house. It's easy to okay. put up and take down, you know, it's not, well, you know, it's not custom. Oh, track it's, housing. It's it's yeah. T-R-A-C-T. Tract housing. Okay, well, it's I a just type of housing development in which multiple similar homes are built on a tract area of land that is subdivided into individual lots. Okay, okay there you go. That's him. Okay, so today I seek genuine friendship from all walks, walks of life, men and women, whatever age, and people willing to tough out this rough patch in my life with me. Those willing to take a chance on getting to know me while at the same time learning how the justice system, quote, really, unquote, functions, placing innocent people into prison while freeing the guilty. (laughs) You know, it wasn't me, right? I can't roll my eyes hard enough. Right? If you believe we might share some common ground, I'd like to hear from you. I can be contacted directly at, and I'm definitely not going to read this jackass's freaking address, but he is in the San Quentin's um, California State Prison. So there's a lot to um, to break apart here, but you know what? This jerk is just not worth the effort. What I will say is that he and his best friend, Lauren Herzog, known as Slim, comprise a serial killer duo known as the Speed Freak Killers. Huh. 
Okay. So Lauren is like Loren, like Loren, like a man. Lauren L L O R E N. Yes, both men. Okay. L-O-R-E-N, Lauren, or Slim. Okay. Okay. They are responsible for what many believe to be up to 125 murders, untold rapes, burglaries, acts of extortion and terrorism, and drug dealing. So have you ever heard of the Speed Freak Killers? I want to say yes, but then I'm not sure. So but- I know, you know what, my son is like, uh, he's like a criminal minds junkie. And you know how they always refer to, what's his name with a long haired kid? Oh Lord, I don't remember any of their names right now, but um, it's going to come to me as soon as we're finished. But he On mentioned what? them. Uh, what? On Criminal Minds? Yes. The long haired kid? The long haired kid that's mo- whose mom is schizophrenic and he's super smart. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah can't remember his name okay well anyway he mentioned them like in one of the episodes so they have been featured in uh, numerous podcasts documentaries and videos and there are a lot of them out there so Uh if you're interested in learning more um you know i will definitely list our show notes there i've got all my sources on the show notes but again know that i am just touching upon all this stuff spencer reed spencer reed thank you dr reed yes okay so now as Sherman Tyne said, he's currently sitting on death row in San Quentin prison in Marin County, California. But what he didn't tell you in his personable and charming letter was that he's a meth head, a drug dealer, a rapist, a killer, and an absolutely despicable, scary fucker. Like he said, yeah, he was born in February, 1966, raised in Clements, California, and, which is a rural area in San Joaquin County, California. There are a lot of like little towns and stuff right nearby. And, you know, I did like a cursory investigation about the geography of the towns around there and, and the, the counties, but very rural. Okay. Okay. He met his best friend, Lauren Herzog, when they were both three years old, they lived across the street from each other and they had been inseparable since they met their entire lives. And actually they did everything together. Um, basically lived together whether they were the one fa- one house or the other um they went you know they went everywhere they went on vacations together they went wow. you know they basically belonged to each other's families i mean what's the likelihood that these two hook up like as young children like this and then become psychopaths wow right right well i did do a little bit of research on his family he did have some family members back <coughs> in the 30s or 40s who had gone um, to prison for bank robbing and um, and murder. So it kind of runs a little bit in his DNA, I guess. His parents supposedly drank a lot and could be quite offensive. I'm talking about Wes Shermantine here, the guy that wrote the letter. He was quite abusive. Um, Apparently his parents were quite abusive to him and was a child because he was a little shit and got into a lot of trouble. Uh. When he got into trouble, you know, spankings didn't work. Timeout didn't work. So they would allegedly shoot bullets at his feet to make him dance, you know, scare the shit out of him. And his mom supposedly would beat her children with bats and brooms. Locally, she was known as a mean and hateful woman, and people did not cross the Shermantine path. Mr. Shermantine was a pretty successful general contractor. He had at one time built a house for a client who still owed him money for it. Mrs. Shermantine told the man, well, you better pay up or else. And when he didn't, she drove a bulldozer through the man's bedroom while he was sleeping. She was mean, and so was Holy her shit. son, just like his mother. Now, I tried, uh, listen, 
and I'm going to try to find this information for next time. Okay. But, you know, I'm wondering, does she get arrested for this? I know that it was definitely put on the news and it was reported, but I don't, I never saw anywhere where she was arrested or anything. One of the episodes that's going to deal with law enforcement and how law enforcement treated them and dealt with a lot of this. So that might come out in that episode. Okay. All right. So despite his parental issues, Sherman Tyne did live an idyllic privileged life. His dad also spent quality time with both the boys. He regularly took them on fishing and hunting trips. They also explored the mine shafts and the rivers and valleys and wells in the wilds of the eastern San Joaquin County. When the boys were old enough, they did the exploring in the nooks and crannies on their own, and they became very familiar with the land. Someone said that they, the two boys, knew every mine shaft, every spring or rock formation. There wasn't a fishing hole in the area that they had not tested. And they were avid hunters and fishermen. And then later, their boyhood fishing and hunting expeditions took a perverted twist as their love for the hunt grew. Oh, Lord. Mm -hmm. We'll get to that later. Still in their childhood, they were still jerks, even as children. Um, a woman who was interviewed as an adult remembered riding on their elementary school bus, and she remembers them as being shit disturbers and disruptors, even on the bus, especially um, Sherman Tyne. She said that Herzog was, um, who went by Slim because he was skinny, was really cute. He was kind of like, uh, you know, an edgy, cute, cute guy, and he would distract the bus driver and everyone else. While Sherman Tyne, who was neither slim nor handsome, would, you know, do something awful. Uh, they really were partners in crime. From they really early. were. They really were. And we'll talk at, um, in one of the episodes about the psychology between the two, because some people, you know, one of the attorneys said, oh, well, he was kind of the puppet of the other one. And then the other one said, no, he was, you know, it was, they were blaming each other for everything. Yeah. Whatever the case, the two were always together and many even thought they were brothers because they were so close. As they grew older into their teens, they started partying really hard and um, destroying anything in their way. You know, when they started getting started driving, I mean, they were pure hell on the roads. Hey, everybody. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about this week's sponsor, Best Fiends. As you all know, researching criminal cases is my passion, but even I need an occasional break. So when I feel like I need to escape to a simpler world, I always turn to the mobile puzzle game, Best Fiends. If you haven't heard, Best Fiends is a puzzle game that you can play right on your phone. Each level has challenging puzzles that you have to solve and they actually engage your brain. No worries at all because this is a casual relaxing game that anyone can play and it's really, really fun. See, Best Fiends are these adorable little characters who are tasked with saving a minutia from the slugs who are rampaging across the land rounding up best fiend families and glooping up the countryside. This is a vibrant and creative world with almost 40 unique fiends in the best fiends world. Even better, new fiends are added all the time. My goal is to collect them all, so I always check the newest additions to the family. This week, let me tell you about Miles from Mellow Flowers. Miles is famous for his irresistible wiggle. He may not be the fastest of the fiends, but he always gets there, one inch at a time. You have got to check this little guy out. I love finding a new favorite character to spotlight each month. Best Fiends updates the game monthly with new levels and events, so it never gets old. True crime-loving listeners, 
Join us and the millions of others who love this app. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. If they wanted something, they took it. And that included sex. Great. Yeah, right? So, um, you know, you think about date rape. uh, These would be your guys, okay? As a teen, Sherman Time was accused of getting rough with some of the girls that he took out or just met. So if he saw a girl on the side of the road, you know, he would pick her up. A couple of the times he had been accused of savagely raping the girls. Oh my God. Despite reports to enforcement, he never seemed to get anything but a slap on the wrist for these crimes. Um, someone else described him as a spoiled boy whose family owned a lot of acreage and had a lot of power and protected him in every turn. So, you know, when he got in trouble, it's okay. Mommy and daddy will take care of it. Jeez. Sometimes he would force girls into his truck and then drive them somewhere and rape them. And then I did find a comment on Reddit that said he'd been pulling this stuff for years and that's all capital. One victim escaped and Wes and Lauren were arrested and tried. The local jury acquitted because the victim was, in quotes, just a prostitute and therefore unreliable, while the defendants were good old boys. Mm, That's disgusting. Yep. And no woman or child was off limits from these jackasses, okay? Because Dolly, who was Sherman Tyne's younger sister, told a journalist that one night Herzog and her brother came home really drunk after a night of partying and... She was raped by Herzog violently. She was 12 years old. Oh, my God. And when he finished, she was then raped by her brother. Shut up. She said that she never told anyone because she was afraid that no one would believe her. Plus, she was also scared of what would happen to her if she told. So she said she had never revealed that. But her brother did send her letters apologizing to her later. Oh, my God. That's awful. She um, said that she was quite relieved when Wes and Lauren finally graduated because in 1984, they graduated and they moved out. They got an apartment together in nearby Stockton, which is their little town. There they hung out at local bars, which I'm going to get into more deeply in another episode. And they really got a nasty reputation. Like, you know, girls are like, don't leave with them. You know, guys are like, you don't want to be stuck alone with them. People were disappearing and their names always came up. Oh, God. But you know what? They always had drugs. So, you know, they were magnets for people. One time they were hanging out after, after the bars closed, they were all hanging out partying and Sherman time started bragging about, you know, the ultimate prey, the ultimate hunt. And he said, yeah, it's the thrill of the human hunt. And the person that reported this said that when Lauren realized that Sherman time was running his mouth and drunken, you know, drunken, bragging lauren took wes aside and told him to shut up so it was well known that sherman tyne and herzog funded their hunting trips to um to other states by selling marijuana and meth so they would often um, go to utah or parts of nevada for hunting and basically all of their bills a lot of their big bills were paid by selling drugs Many suspected that the two along the way did random road hunting while they were on these trips because the two enjoyed driving the scenic back roads. They always drove with um, a rifle at their side and apparently neither one of them hesitated to pull that rifle out when the opportunity arose. Um, I just don't understand how these people meet. I mean, how like, you know, they're called the speed freak. Universal lines that these psychos, golly. 
Yeah. And, you know, I, I really don't understand it either. I read a lot about how, oh, the drugs made them do it. But you know what? To me, that's a freaking, um, that's a cop out. You yeah. know, I know that drugs change people, but these were shitty kids when they were children. Yeah. You know, they didn't get, they didn't suffer consequences or, you know, when, when, and, and look at the role model that they had. Um, one, once Herzog and Shermantine were riding together in their, in Shermantine's truck and they passed a 1982 Pontiac that was pulled over on the side of the road. They turned around and took the shotguns from their truck and approached the car. Shermantine fired first at the driver, killing Howard Michael King, who was 35, as he sat in the car. And then he dragged Paul Raymond Cavanaugh, who's 31, from the passenger door and shot him at point-blank range before he cut open his pockets with a knife. Some people believe that it was because they were gay, but I, you know, that was just one theory that was, of course, you know, I have to bring that up. I don't know why, but it turned out that was like one avenue that the police investigated because they weren't sure why the two were, were picked out. Okay. But most likely because they were on the side of the road and they were there. Yeah. Um, another incident, Shermantine and Herzog were in the same truck on highway 88 near um, Hope Valley drive or Hope Valley, when they passed 41-year-old Henry Howell, who was drunk, and he pulled over on the side of the road to take a little nap, and Sherman Time pulled over, he got out of his truck, and he shot Howell with a shotgun, point blank, and um, later the DA said that Howell wasn't even robbed, they just saw him, shot him, and then drove on. Good grief. Yeah, and you know, the two were never charged with any out-of-state slings, but they were, they were suspects in cases that in Reno, Utah, New Mexico, where people would be found dead on the side of the road, and they were, you know, they could prove that the two were in the area at the time, like um, via hunting licenses and some speeding tickets that correlated to the homicides, but you know, those aren't enough to make a court case. Right. And I guess I didn't have ballistics or anything like that. Now, over the years, Shermantine also told relatives and acquaintances that he had made people disappear around the outskirts of Stockton. He often used bullying and threats to co coerce people into giving him what he wanted. And in a confrontation with a woman in a trailer park, he allegedly told her. He like allegedly had her on the ground, like on top of her, pushed down, listen to the heartbeats of people I've buried here, listen to the heartbeats of family families I've buried here. That's pretty scary, right? Uh, not the nicest man on the planet. Several witnesses later testified that they had been brutalized by Sherman Tyne. Five women testified that they had been violently raped or sodomized by both of the men. One of Sherman Tyne's babysitters said that he attacked her and raped her when she stopped by his house to collect money that he owed her. Another woman came forward saying that he had rear-ended her car and then kidnapped her at knife point when she pulled off the road to exchange insurance information. She got away by jumping out of his car while it was moving. Um, yeah. Good Lord. So, yeah. I mean, how the hell does he get away with all this? I don't get it. Don't um, get in it. Yeah. In 1984, Joanne Hobson, who was 19, went missing. And in 1985, so did a 16-year-old, Kimberly Ann Billy. And no one had seen or heard from either of them. But rumors were flying that it was Sherman Tyner Herzog who, Herzog who were behind their disappearances. Good grief. 
This is terrible. Right? Like, how, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Cause it this doesn't just, like- Yeah. This is just the first years, like when they moved out and who knows what they did beforehand. There was, I did find um, stories of other teenagers who went missing from Franklin high school, which is where they went. There was a 16 year old um, boy who went missing later two other people were charged with his murder they ended up um i guess i don't know if he went i think he did go missing but two people were charged with his murder although other people especially members of his family believe that shermantine and herzog were responsible for it Mm. so there are other instances of people i'm not mentioning right so you know the two always had pot they graduated in 1985 so i mean in 1984 so they were 18 and when they were 19 in 1985, you know, they were magnets for addicts because they always had pot and meth and, you know, they would always dangle it in front of women, you know, with a promise of drugs. Yeah. Come on out. Let's go do some blow or whatever. One woman they lured was Roberta Armtrout. She went by Robin. So I'm going to call her Robin. Okay. She was a slim red haired woman with a genuine smile, even though she lived a hard life. And she thought that she was going to be hanging out with these two guys for a fun night of drinking and, you know, partying. But instead, they ended up, the three of them, in a country pasture just east of Shermantine and Herzog's family homes, childhood homes. And apparently, Shermantine got carried away, beating and raping and eventually stabbing her before leaving her naked on the bank of a creek. Um, so at 24, they call she that was carried a- away. <laughs> Say it again. He just got carried away. I mean, that's, yeah. well, that's what, uh, and I'll tell you more about this in a, in a later episode, but these okay. are, yes. So she was 24 and she was a prostitute and a meth addict and a mother of three children who were being raised by her family. So, but you know, she, her family loved her dearly. Her sister, Candy Enos, remembers her as a fire hair beauty, who loved animals and babies and whose generous spirit touched everyone. Um, when she turned up missing on September 4th, 1985, her older sister f- was panicked. She said days later, her panic turned to pain when her body was found in a creek just I- outside of town. That is awful. Was, yeah. I can't imagine, so, like, when you, especially when you have a family member that maybe is in distress and maybe an addict, and you're probably somewhat kind of used to them kind of going in and out. But then after so many days or whatever, you yes. start seeing the worst of that. Right, right. Because they did hear from her regularly, you know, even though she was, um, you know, she had her issues. The last time she had been seen was in front of her mom's house. And their witnesses saw her getting into a red truck with two men. One was tall and thin. Um, what they do know is that she was raped and stabbed 46 times and disposed of face down. Her slim six or 46? 46. 46. Holy shit. Her slim, yeah. Do you think he lost control a little bit? Her slim 24 year old body bore the marks of a violent death, but it also told the story of a troubled life. She had tattoos on her abdomen and wrists, which, um, you know, back in the 19 in 1985, tattoos were not as common as they were. So I think when I saw that, they, they put, um, the newspaper wrote obscenities carved on her lower abdomen and I'm like what they abs- oh, they carved stuff in her abdomen well it turned out that they were tattoos uh well you know how you I feel know, like that. you know the <laughs> they weren't mainstream at that time so a woman had a tattoo at that time she was looked down on you know what I mean by society uh, whatever my tattoos don't like you either that's what well yeah but <laughs> 
Well, how old? I mean, what year when you got your first tattoo? Oh, it was 20 years ago. Okay. So that wasn't 1985. No, but I mean, I'm trying to think. Yeah. I mean, men, I guess, I guess. I would say, I would say that tattoos became, uh, we started getting more kind of mainstream, like early nineties, mid nineties, by mid nineties, women were getting more of the tramp stamps, but you know, the tribals, early nineties, those were coming out. They were more, you know, cause I just remember I was alive back then. Anyway, she did have those two tattoos. And um, when her family asked, well, why'd you get those? She says, I don't know. I was loaded. But those tattoos are really what helped identify her because she was, you know, beaten and destroyed so savagely. Her family said that when she was 10, she had a high fever that changed her. And after the fever, the doctor said that it did something to her brain. And that's what the family said caused her drinking and turning to drugs. They also, she also started having compulsive behavior. She became a clean freak. She took baths and showers three or four times a day and changed her clothes and washed her hair that often. And every time she ate, she would brush her teeth so much that the enamel would brush off. Damn, that sounds like a yeah. meth. A meth head, right? Yeah. I mean, I call them meth heads, but I know, I know that she was, you know, in need, whatever. She was generous and she gave to the needy. Like she would give food and you know she was she didn't have much she gave what she had she had already been married and divorced twice by the time she was um the first time she was married was when she was barely 17 and then the second time she married uh her second husband was a guy named Richard Armtrout and she married him in her early 20s he himself was an addict and he was murdered in October 1984 he was first hit run down by a pickup truck and then he was hacked to death in a dispute over another man's girlfriend so he's married lord uh, and gets killed over another man's girlfriend of course as i said she was a heroin and meth addict and she did turn to prostitution and theft to support her habit that's definitely the opposite of two worlds right there yeah right she ended up going to prison on a robbery convictions and then she was paroled in, in 1984. So she was out on parole when her body was found. According to her sister, when she met her death, she was looking for love in all the wrong places. And she was looking for someone to love for her, love her for her. And her sister said she was happy that I found love with my husband. She wanted that. She said that the last time she saw her sister was at a, about a week before she disappeared when Arm Trout came to her house and spent the day with her. They talked about like, you know, normal sister stuff. Okay. Um, she ate and then um, took a shower, washed her hair and they, you know, sat in the bathroom and talked and then arm trout left at about 1130 PM. And, um, you know, she never saw her sister again. That's sad. About a month later, 16 year old Chevette Wheeler, who's known as Chevy to her friends and family, who was, she was a junior in high school. Got an early morning call from West Shermantine. This was October 7th, 1985. So it was just about a month after um, Robin, Robin Armtrout's body was found. Chevy's little sister knew that it was West Shermantine because she answered the phone. She was 14 at the time. And she said, I recognize his voice right away. After I said hello to him, I gave the phone to my sister Chevy. Now, Marnie was a sister. She was staying home from school that day. She didn't feel well. And, um, she was kind of eavesdropping on her sister's phone call, but didn't hear the whole entire conversation. She said the conversation was about 10 minutes. And then uh, Marty's like, what was that all about? What's going on? You know, what's, what do you have planned? And so Chevy told her that she had just made plans to hang out with Wes until about lunchtime. 
she was going to skip her morning classes to go smoke some pot. So Marty said she was going to meet Wes, cut school, go to Valley Springs. And that's um, his family had a cabin there. And Chevy had told Marnie, if Donnie calls, Donnie's her boyfriend, tell him I'll be back by lunchtime, but don't tell him where I am. And if I'm not back by lunchtime, you know, I'm with Wes Sherman time. So Marnie said that by 2.30, her sister had not come home. And she tried to cover for her even for a few hours. Um, She said that she and her sister, that even Marnie had smoked pot with Wes before. And Wes had always wanted to date Chevy, but Chevy didn't like him like that. She further stated that she believed her sister only skipped school that day for the drugs, but still Marnie covered for her until later in the evening and eventually telling her her parents that Chevy had skipped school with Shermantine. And um, her parents were a little bit upset because Chevy had been doing poorly in school and had been skipping school and just a week before had promised her parents that she would straighten up and work harder at school. You know, her dad's like, she was hanging out with a wild crowd and she had promised us that she would do better. So they were kind of upset, you know, disappointed. Oh, I imagine so. Oh. She never came home. And Shermantine was suspected, of course, because he was suspected for her, um, her disappearance. Oh. And they did a huge investigation. There was some blood spatter and all of that in the cabin, but they had, there were drops found on in other places, which I'm going to talk about a little bit more next week. Okay. But, you know, they didn't have DNA at all. All right. Yeah. So, too early. Um, you know, what I will say is that, you know, he went to the parents' house the next day and said, you know, I did call, but she didn't go with me. And then, then he changed the story. So I dropped her off back at school. So, you know, he just gave them a bunch of bullshit, but of course there's no evidence at all to arrest him and, you know, interrogate him or anything like that. So the search for her went on for years and years. That is awful. Isn't it? Yeah. So anyway, I, I think that this is a good place to stop with the disappearance of Chevy Wheeler um, and Robin Armstrong. And there were a couple of others that um, I did not mention. Oh, I did mention Kimberly and um, Kimberly and the other Joanne Hobson. So I did mention them. Okay. Yes. We'll come back to them later. So that's it for this week. We, um, this is just from 1984 to 1985, all this awful stuff. All that and white. all that. Right. And they're free and clear. They're living the high life, um, partying, having a good time, you know, so. Holy crap. I can't imagine how much worse it must get. Uh, yeah, it gets pretty bad. I mean, like I said, this sick, sick, sick people. So, yeah. Oh, my God. Well, thank you so much. Holy moly. You're welcome. You're welcome. Well, everyone, thank you so much for listening to this week's murder or the beginning of it, rather. Um, We appreciate sharing our passion with you and thank you for your support. If you'd like to support us even further, please consider subscribing to our podcast and giving us a five-star rating and a comment, please. Your subscription and ratings are very essential to our success. You can do this on your favorite platform. And for more information and links to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages, please visit our website at itwasn'tmetruecrime.com. We are so grateful to spend our time together to share murderous stories. Thank you so much for your support. Please recommend It Wasn't Me to your true crime-loving friends and family. Also, thank you to our Patreon supporters. You are the extra. You too can become one of our beloved patrons by signing up at patreon.com forward slash It Wasn't Me pod. Thanks again, guys. And remember, it it wasn't wasn't me. me.